This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Sickle cell disease is a rare genetic condition that causes red blood cells to become misshapen and damaged. The condition activates immune cells and blocks blood flow in capillaries, causing injury to many organs and pain daily. Amara is developing an experimental therapy that can prevent the sickling of red blood cells and also reduce the adhesion of white blood cells to reduce the blockage of the blood vessels. We spoke to Rahul Bilal, CEO of Amara, about the therapy, the class of drugs it belongs to, and what the company has done to enroll a population of patients traditionally underrepresented in clinical trials. Rahul, thanks for joining us. Uh, Thanks, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here. We're going to talk about sickle cell disease, Amara, and its lead therapeutic in development to treat the condition. Let's start with sickle cell disease itself, though. I imagine many listeners have heard of the condition but may not understand exactly what it is. How rare is it? How does it manifest itself? And how does it progress? That's a great question. Um, And um, one of the beauties and hallmarks of sickle cell disease is that it presents itself as a very simple mutation in the hemoglobin, beta globin gene. Normal DNA sequences of hemoglobin have a glutamic acid in the mRNA, and for patients who have sickle cell, there's a single point mutation where that glutamic acid is swapped out for valine, and that presents what I would suggest is a simple point mutation in the beta-globin gene, but has complex implications on the life of a sickle cell patient. It is a rare disease uh, in the U.S. and Europe with approximately 160,000 people um, living with sickle cell disease. But as you expand across the world, there are millions of people, uh, the majority of them in Africa, uh, that actually have uh, sickle cell disease or the sickle cell trait. And the organizing principle for the pathology of the disease is what we call a sickled red blood cell. And that red blood cell, because of the point mutation that I talked about earlier, um, turns into a crescent-shaped moon um, and it has issues related to carrying oxygen to tissues in need, um, carrying oxygen um, and, and thus creating a what we call hypoxic environment for those tissues. Uh, because those tissues can no longer get the oxygen they need to survive. The sickled red blood cell is also a deformed 
uh, vehicle for oxygen transport and thus does not have the efficiencies and dynamism of a regular red blood cell. So they often get stuck in the vessel walls. Uh, they damage the vessels of the um, various capillaries that deliver and take blood away from tissues and organs of interest. And importantly, because they have um, problems traveling through the body, they cause lots of issues with patients. It's a multifactorial pathology, unlike other diseases, where patients are subject to increased risk of stroke, pain, um, which is very common in the form of a vaso-occlusive crisis, otherwise known as a sickle cell pain-related crisis, issues related to priapism and renal function, and often patients, unfortunately, pass away due to acute chest syndrome. There's a significant reduction in life expectancy as few people live beyond the age of 50. And the challenge with sickle cell disease is because it's this point mutation that starts in utero, um, these patients have to live with sickle cell disease from very early on in their life through adulthood and ultimately uh, when they pass away. And so you have this lifelong condition that is progressively getting worse that has no cure. And what is the treatment options today for a, a patient with sickle cell? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, there are a few treatment options available for patients, um, and I'll just say that industry has um, filled the pipeline with potential treatment options, but let's just talk about the ones that are actually approved by the agency. The first one is hydroxyurea which is a chemotherapeutic and is for the treatment of sickle cell disease, uh, both in adults and kids. The challenge with hydroxyurea, and I should just note that it has, in fact, been transformative for some patients. However, it is an old chemotherapeutic um, and works in a variety of different ways. One of the different ways that it works in it is that it helps uh, red blood cells um, generate what's called fetal hemoglobin which enhances their ability to carry oxygen. However, hydroxyurea is dosed in a titrated fashion. So patients that are already subject to lots of medical intervention related to their disease have to come in and get titrated for a dose. They often start on a sub-therapeutic dose, and that dose is increased over time, over a period of months to years. and that that length of time that it takes a patient to get to the right dose is one of the reasons why compliance on hydroxyurea is very low. It also has a variety of well-understood toxicities. Patients become neutropenic, which means that their white blood cell counts fall to dangerously low levels, which can make them subject to increased infection and risk for their livelihood. And then finally, um, hydroxyurea, because it is a chemotherapeutic, has mutagenic potential and cannot be taken, for example, when a, a woman or a man, a woman when she's trying to get pregnant, and for a man, it has transient reductions in sperm. So there's a lot of issues with it. Again, it has been transformative for some patients, but the proof is in the pudding. Only about a third of patients um, who have sickle cell are actually on hydroxyurea. There is one more treatment that was recently improved. Um, it's an L-glutamine uh, treatment that is... Um, uh, supposed to take uh, an approach of vasodilating the different vessels and enabling um, an improvement of vaso-occlusive crises, the pain crises that are 
uh, dealt with and felt by sickle cell patients all the time. It's had modest results and, and unfortunately hasn't quite had the uptake that I think patients and, of course, health care providers would like. MR has attracted top-flight venture capital backing. It, it actually began with Insidan, the, the orphan drug accelerator. How did MR come about? So the company, as you appropriately said, was was uh, a brainchild of the rare disease incubator Sidon, which is funded by NEA, Pfizer, Lundbeck, uh, Bay City, and more recently Longitude Capital. And the, the organizing principle for the company is that the, there is a well-known correlation between increasing cyclic GMP and that conferring a benefit on improvement and um, transcription of fetal hemoglobin. Again, there's several types of hemoglobin in your body. The term fetal refers to the fact that that hemoglobin is only around when you are in the womb and shortly outside of the womb. And as you age, within the six months, your fetal hemoglobin levels go, go from very high to almost nil. But what we've learned um, at Amara and also through the literature is that there are ways to turn on fetal hemoglobin switch um, related to your gene and transcribing fetal hemoglobin. And through the Cytin incubator, we were able to find a set of compounds um, in the phosphodiesterase 9 category that turn on cyclic GMP and thus transcribe and enable the production of fetal hemoglobin. And it's a really interesting evolutionary strategy. Um, because fetal hemoglobin is not expressed in adults, but the gene is still there. Finding a way to turn it on has kind of been the modus operandi of many companies, including Imara. Imara is, is unique because we've taken an approach by inhibiting the degrader of cyclic GMP, which is phosphodiesterase 9. And by inhibiting that degrader, we are enabling the production of high quantities of cyclic GMP which confer that benefit on fetal hemoglobin. Turning it on, reducing that sickled red cell that we talked about earlier, and in most importantly, improving the oxygen-carrying capacity of red blood cells. You joined the company in, in June as its CEO. What attracted you to Amara? Yeah, it's been an exciting uh, four or five months as CEO. And, and to, be, to be brief, I think there's, there's three things that really attract me to the program. Number one, we're treating patients. And the opportunity to be a CEO of a company that's actually treating patients um, is, a, for me, a, um, a big honor, number one, but to a big challenge in terms of ensuring that patient safety is, is, is tantamount um, that we're running a clinical trial with the appropriate ethics and regulations of both the agency and the clinical trial sites, and of course engaging with with um, clinicians on on those specific components of the trial. Number two, I was really attracted by the patient population because I do think, like um, others in the sickle cell field, it, it is an underrepresented patient population. They have a lot of strikes against them in terms of uh, socioeconomic condition, uh, some of the challenges associated with medical care and skepticism related to medical treatment. And I just, I just thought it was a really, really important population to help out. It's one of the few diseases where mortality has actually gone up over the advancements in medicine, which is 
rare. In, in cancer, you see, you know, people living longer, for example. In sickle cell disease, between 1945 and today, you actually see people living shorter lives, uh, which is, you know, concerning. And so I thought it would be important to treat this patient population. And third, frankly, I like the investor syndicate and the team that was here. I think the uh, folks at NEA and Pfizer and the other members on the board are long-term investors. They have a long view of of the of drug development, and they understand there are going to be bumps in the road, and hopefully less bumps and more highs. But certainly, they're in it for the long haul. Your lead therapeutic is IMR six eighty seven. What is it, and can you give a, a non technical explanation about what it's doing inside the body? Sure. Uh, so IMR six eight seven is a first in class oral therapy that patients take once a day, and that therapy does two things. It reduces some of the red cell issues that we talked about earlier, reducing sickling of red cells and destruction of damaged red cells, so it's protective of the red cell. It also does something really interesting on the white cell. turns out that the white cell um, aspect of sickle cell disease is not a well-appreciated but important aspect of the pathology. White cells get sticky in the vessel walls in patients who have sickle cell, and that stickiness leads to aggregation and adhesion and ultimately some of the pain crises that we um, talked about earlier. And so the the drug does both um, attacks the red cell and prevents the white cell from sticking um, and aggregating around those sickled red cells. This is a class of drug that's gotten some attention in recent years. Are there applications beyond sickle cell for IMR 687? That's a great question. Um, there are. Um, beta thalassemia, so the hemoglobinopathies uh, therapeutics areas, beta thalassemia and other related issues to the function and um, production of, of hemoglobin and some of its different components are another target area for this drug. And more broadly speaking, the, as, you, as you noted well, this drug has been tried in other indications such as uh, neurodegenerative diseases and cardiovascular approaches. And what's unique about the IMR-687 program is unlike any phosphodiesterase 9 inhibitor out there, we are the only one that we know of that does not penetrate the blood-brain barrier because if you're going to use this drug in a pediatric sickle cell patient population, that requires a chronic therapy. You don't want to be penetrating the blood, uh, the, the brain of young children. And so when we were thinking about this program, the, one of the organizing principles was to develop a drug that inhibited PD-9 in the red cell and in the white cell, but not in the brain. What do we know about IMR-687 from clinical studies to date? Yeah, that's a, a, a really good point. And um, to be brief, we've studied the, the drug in phase one clinical trials in healthy, normal volunteers. We found that it's extremely well tolerated and safe um, and that there is a, a dose that uh, is shown to be efficacious in mice. Um, and safe and well-tolerated in humans. There's been 66 uh, patients that have been studied on this drug already, and currently we are in a phase two trial uh, 
with sickle cell patients as opposed to the earlier trial adventure, which was in healthy normal volunteers, to both establish dose, um, PK, safety, and make sure this drug can actually um, be safely tolerated in chronic use in sickle cell patients. In addition, we'll be looking at some of the well-established biomarkers related to sickle cell disease to see if we could see some initial hints of improvement against those parameters. The populations involved in sickle cell are populations that have traditionally been underrepresented in clinical trials. Have you had any problem with enrollment, and, and what have you done to recruit patients? Any thing you're doing in your approach that's different than might be typically done in a clinical study? Yeah, um, it's, it's actually an excellent question there. Um, you, you're right. There have been challenges in general, both from enrolling patients in this patient population, but also keeping patients compliant and taking drug, and that's for a variety of different reasons. Um, one of them, I'll say, is something as simple as providing transportation to that patient so he or she can make uh, her or his appointment uh, with the clinical trial site. And so one of the things that we've done is we've thought, put ourselves in the shoes of a patient that may not have the luxuries of uh, transportation, may have to use public transportation at uh, potentially odd times in the day. For example, if your clinical site visit is at 2 p.m., the bus or the um, train may not be running on the rush schedule, so it may be harder for you to get to, or you may live far away from the clinical trial site. So one of the things we've done to improve compliance to kind of help patients uh, meet those appointments and more importantly, overall help patients stay on the study is to provide uh, transportation uh, through the clinical site for those patients to come and um, take part in the study. In addition, uh, patient compensation is an important aspect of any clinical trial, but in this specific patient population, it's important that we recognize that they are often potentially taking time off work to come, um, potentially without the appropriate sick leave or holiday schedule that maybe other patients might have. And so we've kept compensation, um, I would say, uh, at a robust level in order to facilitate patients' um, ability to leave work um, and still feel that they are uh, appropriately compensated. And then finally, most importantly, we've been running patient engagement events in the community. Uh, we're running one in, in, at UConn in a few weeks. Um, and those are really to not sell our clinical trial, because to be very clear, that's not what we're in the business to do, but to help inform patients as to why clinical trials are important in general. And then if they choose with their PI, um, um, sorry, with their GP, general practitioner, or principal investigator to enroll in a clinical trial, that being ours or someone else's in the sickle cell space, we welcome that. What's the path forward? And assuming all goes well, when might you be in a position to file for regulatory approval? Uh, the path forward is to finish up the study on adults and potentially start a study on pediatric populations in the near term. And, you know, I think one of the nice things about the sickle cell space is that advanced and accelerated regulatory approvals are part of the FDA mandate for this particular therapeutic category. So 
I think it might be too early for me to say that we'd have an accelerated approval um, because we don't quite have the data yet. But what I can say is that we would use every opportunity the agency provides, including things like applying for breakthrough status, um, showing the agency adaptive designs to, to take what we might think is of an approval in 2023 um, to something much earlier. Rahul Bilal, CEO of Amara. Rahul, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Danny. appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.